There stood once, in a public place, a black tower with massive fortress-like walls and a few grim bastioned windows. It had been built by robber barons, but time swept them into the beyond, and the tower became partly a prison for dangerous criminals and grave offenders, and partly a residence. In the course of centuries, new structures were added to it, and were buttressed against the massive walls of the tower and against one another. Little by little, it assumed the dimensions of a fair-sized town set on a rock, with a broken skyline of chimneys, turrets, and pointed roofs. When the sky gleamed green in the west, there appeared, here and there, lights in the various parts of the tower. The gloomy pile assumed quaint and fanciful contours, and it somehow seemed that at its foot there stretched not an ordinary pavement, but the waves of the sea, the salty and shoreless ocean, and the picture brought to one's mind the shapes of the past, long since dead and forgotten. An immense ancient clock, which could be seen from afar, was set in the tower. Its complicated mechanism occupied an entire story of the structure, and it was under the care of a one-eyed man who could use a magnifying glass with expert skill. This was the reason why he had become a clockmaker and had tinkered for years with small timepieces before he was given charge of the large clock. Here he felt at home and happy. Often, at odd hours, without apparent need, he would enter the room where the wheels, the gears and the levers moved deliberately, and where the immense pendulum cleft the air with wide and even sweep. Having reached the limit of its travel, the pendulum said, "'Twas ever thus." Then it sank and rose again to a new elevation, and added, "'Twill ever be. T'was ever thus. T'will ever be. T'was ever thus. T'will ever be." These were the words with which the one-eyed clockmaker was wont to interpret the monotonous and mysterious language of the pendulum. The close contact with the large clock had made him a philosopher, as they used to say in those days. Over the ancient city where the tower stood, and over the entire land, there ruled one man, the mystic lord of the city and of the land, and his mysterious sway, the rule of one man over the millions, was as ancient as the city itself. He was called the King, and dubbed the Twentieth, according to the number of his predecessors of the same name. But this fact explained nothing. Just as no one knew of the early beginnings of the city, no one knew the origin of this strange dominion, and no matter how far back human memory reached, the records of the hoary past presented the same mysterious picture of one man who lorded over millions. There was a silent antiquity over which the memory of man had no power, but it, too, at rare intervals, opened its lips. It dropped from its jaws a stone, a little slab marked with some characters, the fragment of a column, a brick from a wall that had crumbled into ruin. And again, the mysterious characters revealed the same tale of one who had been lord over millions. Titles, names, and sobriquets changed, but the image remained unchanged, as if it were immortal. The king was born and died like all men, and, judging from appearance, was that common to all men, he was a man. 
but when one took into account the unlimited extent of his power and might, it was easier to imagine that he was God, especially as God had always been imagined to be like a man, and yet suffered no loss of his peculiar and incomprehensible essence. The twentieth was the king. This meant that he had power to make a man happy or unhappy, that he could take away his fortune, his health, his liberty, and his very life. At his command, tens of thousands of men went forth to war, to kill and to die. In his name were wrought acts just and unjust, cruel and merciful, and his laws were no less stringent than those of God.' 